I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, where are we going in the world of snacks this time? Well, I've got um, I've gone for sort of traditional with a twist, I'll call it. Uh, the world's oldest chocolate company are Fries, as you would know, Dan, being from York. Mm. Um, and I've got the Turkish Delight Bar, which people would remember advertised in the 70s with a, a belly dancer and the, and the catchphrase, full of Eastern promise. Mm. Um, not, in, not in Saltburn, it wasn't. Um, and I've also got the Fry's Chocolate Cream Bar, which was advertised by George Lazenby. He was very briefly James Bond. But Fry's, for years and years, they just stuck with their traditional methods. But now the Turkish Delight Bar I've got, which would normally have rose-flavoured Turkish Delight in it, has lemon-flavoured Turkish Delight. And the Cream Bar, the Fry's Cream Bar, which would normally be peppermint or fondant, is raspberry-flavoured. Mm. It's a bit like, it's a, bit like a, a, a football team that have struck rigidly to the WM formation. <laughs> and then suddenly have just gone, let's have a sweeper and a false number nine and inverted wingers. Yeah, it's too much choice. It's it's Thatcherism. <laughs> it's the ultimate victory of Thatcherism. <laughs> I think Fry's was a is a Bristol product, wasn't it? So not not a Roundtree or Terrier, which is my purview. They're part of they're part of the part of Cadbury's, I think, as well. It's mm. Quakers. It's the Quakers. I, I do remember them from my school days because one of the Fry's was a famous Victorian prison reformer. Yes, Elizabeth Fry and chocolatier. <laughs> <laughs> what is the link between? Quakers and chocolate. Did you ever establish that in your Quaker education? Um, it was just it was just when Quakers first became sort of intre- became involved in business. Chocolate was a big business. It, the chocolate houses of London were that was where people went. And Lloyd's. So a lot of banks started out as actually places where you could drink hot chocolate. Like Lloyd's Bank, I'm pretty sure was a was a chocolate house. 
So it was just really timing. Had it been now, it would be coffee. It would be barista-style coffee that they'd be involved with. Ah, <laughs> and Harry, it's not looking good for the Northern League, even if they were allowed to sell Scotch eggs as substantial meals in the clubhouses. No, it's, a bit, it's all a bit sad. I, I mean, people, you know, some people would probably wonder why it's safe to go Christmas shopping in the Metro Centre with mm. thousands of other people indoors, where it's not safe to stand outside with 150 people. Um, but mm. people don't, what people don't realise is that the coronavirus actually prefers non-league football to shopping. And probably, although science hasn't established this yet, I think it's probably the first virus that can use the Groundhopper app. <laughs> um, but the good thing is, Dan, that because I, because I haven't been able to go to football, I've been, I've been filling my football void by going through the Borough Alphabet book, which oh, I think yes. we discussed last time as well. Mm. And this time I came across Joe Frail, who is the Middlesbrough goalkeeper between 1900 and 1905, when Middlesbrough first entered the Football League and got promoted. And it reveals that he was actually, uh, he was a Romany and during his playing days lived in a caravan and always wore a spotted handkerchief tied around his neck and ran also ran a stall in Middlesbrough Market in which you could pay to take penalties against him. But despite oh. the fact that he's Middlesbrough's most successful goalkeeper in terms of goals per game conceded. I think it's less than one per game. He was eventually fired uh, after the second time he was convicted in the police courts of a misdemeanor. Oh, did he wear the neckerchief while playing? He wore it. He, apparently he was, yes, he was He was noted for wearing this neckerchief while playing. Oh, an early snood. <laughs> I think, yes, they would have, they, he would probably have marketed it now. It would have been a bit of branding. People have said, oh, it's just branding. <laughs> Andy, any excitement there? Uh, well, excitement might be a stretch, but I've had another encounter with the natural world and once more ended up on the losing side. Um, on my daily walk through the park, I saw, the other day, I saw a crowd of pigeons and I just happened to think to myself, you know, the whole time I've lived in London, I've never been crapped on by a pigeon. Not that I wanted to be, but it just never happened. You know, all the birds flying around, n- hmm. never crapped on me. Following day, on my walk to the supermarket, walk alongside a tall building, I hear this splat. And there's bird shit on my shoulder, which I managed to wipe off. Though, I hope this isn't the start of a thing where I think of something negative, then the next day it happens. You know, like a terrible new power. If so, I'll have to make sure I never think, do you know, I've never been knocked down by a horse. And then the next, then the next day I start to hear the sound of distant hooves getting louder. You know. But on the other hand, you could maybe put a bet on it happening and make money out of it, Andy. Like, you know, I've never been hit by a pit, run down by a pig. What, what, were the odd, what odds would you get on that? It'd be terrifying if the odds are very short. Just for me. <laughs> Probably would be. Also, I mentioned recently there was a Dutch coach whose name translates as Ron Greenwood, Ron Groenvoud, and I said I'd look for more overseas football people whose name is the same as an English player or manager. I'm just reporting to say I've not got much further with that. There are several Hungarian players called Janos Kovac, which means John Smith in Hungarian, and Russians called Ivan Kuznetsov, which also means John Smith, but there aren't, of course, very many well-known John Smiths in UK football. The last trophy-winning John Smith, I can see, was a midfielder in Swindon's League Cup-winning team in 1969. This is going to take further research. Of course, I might have applied for an EU grant at one time, but of course, that, that ship has now sailed. <laughs> Bit of politics there. <laughs> ah, what could be more festive than Bob Latchford and Gordon McQueen singing about peace? Well, how about a gift subscription to When Saturday Comes? Give someone a subscription to WSC this Christmas and they'll be reminded of your generosity throughout 2021. 
We'll even send out a card, complete with a message from you, telling them all about the generous gift. Order from shop.wsc.co.uk by December 20th to guarantee arrival in time for Christmas. Take it away, lads! Thornton Hibbs, East of Scotland League, playing Craig Royston of Edinburgh. It finished 6-2 to Thornton Hibbs. And for Thornton Hibbs, two players called Gary Thompson, both with a double R in the Gary, scored hat-tricks, which must be the only time in history that two players with the same name have scored hat-tricks in the same game. They shared the Man of the Match award, which I think was tremendous. The team talk had to happen on the pitch due to the restrictions, no changing room access. And the five free press match report said that if there had been a swear box, then the Craig Royston management team would have found themselves penniless. And I really like the idea of a swear box at football, but I was also wondering if anyone listening still has a swear box at home or ever did, and what were the tariffs? Because I've come to think that the swear box was a fictional thing, but perhaps people physically had a swear box. Did either of you have a swear box? I was just thinking, one of the Gary Thompson should really use a middle initial, shouldn't he? Even if it's a made-up yeah. one, like Edward G. Robinson. G didn't really stand for it. It was stood for his original surname, I think. Just call yourself Gary Z. Thompson or something. I, 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 haven't, I didn't have a swear box, but I've been in boxing gyms where they have them strangely hmm. um they you know they they whether but they didn't have to put money in it they had to do press-ups i think there was a, but there oh. was a swear box in the i think at moston lads club boxing gym which had quite a few world champions who trained there i noticed that oh. some of the world champions even had to had to do press-ups for, for swearing and blasphemy um pat barrett was in charge there he was a he was an evangelical christian and he wasn't the he wasn't the sort of man you'd have argued with i think it's fair to say I was amazed that both Garys were Garys with double R, which makes it even rarer somehow. Possibly is, not is it Thompson without the P? Without the P in the Scottish way. Yeah, the P goes yeah. missing around the border, I've noticed, because yeah. many Thompsons in the Newcastle area have the P, and then the P disappears somewhere around Gretna. Something to do with the Picts and the, the Roman Empire not stretching further than the border. And I was at a game on Saturday uh, on a press pass, of course, because fans aren't allowed in Scotland on the whole. And around 10 to 3, a noise behind me of metal on wood and two prongs appearing, a ladder. And then a man's head slowly appeared above towards kickoff. And it turned out he's been going to every home game to cheer on the team and just barracks the ref fantastically. No one knows who he is, though there is rumour that he comes down from an old people's home in the hills. Could he be like death? From like the, the 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 seventh seal, which is why being the old pe- around the old people's home, you need to look well, into that bit. You need use your press pass, Dan, to look further into that. I think a more modern death carrying a ladder rather than a scythe. And the issue four hundred and five of When Saturday Comes is out on December the tenth. It has another excellent letters page. Which ones did you enjoy in particular? Uh, well, Steve Brown wrote in to say that former Peterborough manager George Swindon, who went on to run a garage in Corby later, had a conversation there with Steve's dad about the Kennedy assassination, the JFK one, on the night it happened. Good job it wasn't the night before it happened. Um, Steve wonders if anyone else had discussed a major international event with a football manager. I'm hoping we get a few replies to this. Did you did you discuss the military coup in Chile with Bertie Mee or the Arab Spring with Mickey <laughs> Adams? Let us know. Um, also, James Thompson wrote in to say that he played for his college in the fifth division of the University League against Steve Palmer, who went on to play in the Premier League with Ipswich. He wonders if anyone has played against any of the later professional players at such a low level. 
Um, Ian Dowie, I know, was an aerospace engineer. Um, did he play in an aerospace team in a company league? He would have been quite a formidable opponent if he did. I think uh, WC subscriber Wade Elliott has a degree as well, I think. So maybe he played at that sort of level. Maybe he'll write in as he is a subscriber, so he will uh, he will see that letter. James Thompson with no P, we should note there. That's right. Yeah, he's obviously a picked. <laughs> and Harry, any that caught your eye this time? Um, there, were, there were lots of letters about referees falling over. And yes. or being and was won by a, a guy who had been a referee and had been stung very painfully by a <laughs> yes. wasp, uh, much to the delight of the crowd. And one of those things, though, with with all sport, where if anyone's hit in the groin, everyone laughs, even though it's immensely painful. Everyone knows that it's immensely painful, but everyone laughs just the same. Whereas if you got hit on the side of the head, no one would laugh. So that was very good. There was a letter about porridge as well, about uh, the appearance of uh, Ellen Road in an episode of Porridge. Because remember that Clement and Lafrenet often made references to football in their in their TV mm. programmes and sitcoms. Um, and there was also a complaint about the magazine not smelling because someone had said it smelled like a, a freshly peeled panini sticker and someone wrote in to complain that their magazine uh, didn't smell like that and they, they were hugely disappointed. Any comment to make on that, Andy? Um, it could be that the person who thought it smelled like a panini sticker has got one of those things where they smell things differently. You know, like, is it called synesthesia oh. or something where you can smell colours and stuff? Maybe they've got a particular, it's a, a gift they have, a very a very narrowly used gift, being able to get unusual smells from objects that people can't get smells from, but hopefully they can use it for the benefit of the world. Mm. And maybe when Saturday comes can be used to test for coronavirus. Well, yeah, whatever we can do, really. Happy to help. I noticed there was a letter referring to football mentions in Coronation Street which, uh, with uh, David Platt newspaper clipping being spotted back in the day in the calf they must have used that because of course there was a character called david platt as well yeah we've mentioned on the podcast before football does crop up in coronation street a fair bit there's a, a player uh, a main character that is a footballer at the moment and they used gig lane last year for the for the weatherfield county ground whereas a few years ago they used edgeley park and they thought we wouldn't notice how wrong they were and when saturday comes was mentioned in coronation street once as well that we've never seen we were told about it afterwards and we asked if we could be sent a video and they couldn't send us one so we've never actually seen it but tantalizing it really is <laughs> <laughs> As mentioned, issue 405 of When Saturday Comes is out on December 10th. Please have a think about subscribing to the magazine or buying someone a gift subscription, perhaps for Christmas via our website. Also listen out for our expensively assembled adverts, which we paid a top London agency to make. Andy, tell us about some of the contents in the new issue. Uh, well, we've got Match of the Month by Drew Whitworth, which is about uh, uh, Fleetwood Plymouth. Uh, Plymouth used two of their subs before half-time when they're 3-0 down and brought on the other three for the start of the second half to... Very little effect as they lost 5-1. And Drew says about the game that, because it would have been watched by thousands of people if a crowd had been allowed, that the conviviality and intimacy of football and indeed life slips away like music heard from a great distance getting quieter all the time. Well, hopefully that side of things will improve a bit if crowds are are gradually being allowed back. Um, Wimbledon returned to Plough Lane for 29 years, an article by Shen Simpson who talks about that. And uh, along with that, Glenn Wilson's look at the first and last goal scorers at various grounds. Some are quite appropriate. Uh, Matt Letizier, who, um, as Glenn says before, you know, cult hero turned amateur epidemiologist, um, was the last person to score at the Dell. Uh, Ian Wright at the Old Highbury. John Hendry at Urson Park. Others more obscure, such as uh, Theo Street, who only played 
10 league games, but scored the final goal at uh, Bellevue at uh, Doncaster. And we've got an article by Paul Brown about the origins of the term wooden spoon. There really was an original wooden spoon. But for more details on that, you have to you'll have to read the article. And of course, also two tributes to Diego Maradona: one about his general career and his kind of impact in Europe, and one more about um, Argentina. Um, and he became uh, in late middle ages one of the writers. Jonathan Bryan says uh, like a sort of football and Keith Richards, but was arguably the greatest ever player. I mean, an argument, of course, that, that can never be settled. And Harry's column is is about another World Cup winner who passed away recently, Nobby Styles. Yes, Harry, tell us about that. Um, well, it's about when Nobby Styles was sort of later part of his career when he signed for Middlesbrough um, when I was about ten or eleven. And people have said that it generated the same amount of excitement as when Janinho signed, which I think probably in some ways it did, but people were just less excitable in those days. Um, there was no samba bands. There was no samba Surprisingly not. There should have been some sort of some sort of clog dancing band or something for <laughs> Nobby Stars, I think. Um, so he signed and there was, there was big excitement because at that point in the 60s, there'd been a few of clubs in the, in the second division who'd signed veteran midfield players and then gone on to great success, Leeds United with Bobby Collins and Derby County with your old friend uh, Dave Mackay. And so there was this great kind of talk that Nobby Styles would be Burroughs' Dave Mackay. And whether he was or wasn't, you'll have to buy the magazine to find out. But one of the interesting things was I was looking at old newspaper reports of, of the signing and it was still at that point when journalists sort of affected a kind of wonder and also a slight irritation at the at the at the wealth that footballers had. So Nobby Styles, there's a, a journalist, a, a female journalist from the from the Evening Chronicle, sent to interview his wife, and she notes that he lives in a detached house in an undetached estate in the fashionable village of Yarm, and you can sort of feel the feel the the envy that <laughs> <laughs> this 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 uneducated working class man can afford this glamorous lifestyle. I think they thought footballers should all be put in tied cottages or or just miners' rows or something, like industrial workers with footballers' housing provided by the ground, obviously. Yeah, because I actually know the estate, you know, and it's the sort of, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really, but it was, just, it was just the very idea of a, of a footballer buying a house still, still irritated people for some reason. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Farnborough Town, Jovial Stewards, Gary Penrice, and it's landed on early foreign players. We'll take that to mean early foreign players in this country, I guess. Andy, what does that completely chance topic bring to mind for you? All right, just striking a line through my paragraph on jovial stewards. So, uh, well, because the, the Football League banned foreign uh, p- professionals from playing here for a long time. There were the occasional exceptions. There's a Danish player, Niels Middlebow, played for Chelsea after the First World War. In 1930, Arsenal were banned from signing an Austrian goalkeeper, Rudy Hayden, um, partly because the PFA objected to it. And post-war, there were a few Scandinavian players who played here for a short time but could only play as amateurs. There was a Swedish striker called Hans Jepsen, very successful, shot nine goals in 11 games in 1951 but he couldn't turn professional so he moved to Italy which happened, to, happened with a few other people. There was also a rare case of a European professional in England post-war was uh, Vigo Jensen who played a Danish player mainly played as a wing half but played in a few positions um, who played for Hull. Um, he'd been in Denmark's Olympic squad in 1948 they got a bronze medal and he went to Hull ostensibly on a trade mission representing the Danish fishing industry but was signed as an amateur 
got a job in fishing. I think there used to be a Danish consulate in Hull, I think, because of the trawler connections. Signed as a professional in 1950, was, was there for nine years in total, playing in various positions. He also had what was described as a Danish sausage van um, outside Boothree <laughs> Park on matches. I wouldn't have particularly thought Denmark known, renowned especially for sausages. Maybe, you know, stuck his name at the, the Vigo Burger, or, uh, the, uh, the Vigo Banger or something. But... Um, um, He's famous for hot dogs. The, the Danes, the Danes love hot dogs. Ah, well, that'd be it then. Ah. And they actually make a bun. They actually make a bun with a hole in it already to put the hot dog in. Oh, think of everything. The, <laughs> Scandinavian design. The, the ban on foreign players didn't apply in Scotland, though. Um, the league imposed, I think, a limit on the total number of foreign players allowed. But there were the loads of Scandinavian imports in the, uh, imports in the Scotland in the sixties, principally Danes led by Morton, his own. I think had business contacts in Denmark, and um, best known as goalkeeper Eric Sorensen, um, uh, the man in black, as he was known. Who later played for Rangers, and was also manager of Morton. And there's a Swedish winger called Orjan Persson who played for Dundee United and Rangers and played for Sweden in two World Cups. And the last of that wave really was from the mid seventies. Icelandic defender Johannes Edvolsson who played for Celtic, mainly in a bit with Motherwell, was known as Big Shug, Big Shuggy. He was a centre central defender but scored quite a lot of goals players in from commonwealth countries in general were allowed to play here as professionals and some clubs scouted in certain countries liverpool in the interwar period and charlton post-war both had quite a few white south african players um i guess they must have had say scouts over there um most are from british migrant families and one or two played internationally here liverpool a striker called gordon hodgson who was one of the top scorers in the 30s a time when liverpool weren't very successful he's cut by england and um, Charlton had a Scottish defender, John Huey, um, from South Africa, but played for Scotland in the 58 World Cup. His parents were Scottish. And also Eddie Fermani, um, Charlton striker of, of part Italian background, who later moved to Inter and played for Italy, and, but later came back to Charlton as manager. Um, there's also Bill Perry, a forward of Blackpool, who played in the 54 FA Cup final and played for England. And, and in South Africa, he would have been classed under the apartheid system as, as coloured. Um, but he, he wasn't written about at the time here as, as a black player playing for England, though these days he probably would have been. There were also, of course, um, Albert Johansson, a player called Jerry Francis, who both played for Leeds from South Africa in the early 60s. There's also one real oddity, which is Zoltan Varg, a Hungarian midfielder, had one season with Aberdeen in 72-73. He'd, um, and is still rated as, by some as their best ever foreign player. He had defected um, from in the 68 Olympics went to play in the Bundesliga, was then banned, uh, as several players were over involvement in match fix, and couldn't play in Germany for a year, then moved to Aberdeen, which is quite a coup for them to get him. He left them for Ajax and then eventually moved back to, to Germany again. Um, but then after that, for a little while, there was um, there were all the, pretty much all the players, with one or two exceptions who played in England, were yeah from Commonwealth countries because foreign players weren't allowed until the, until the laws were changed in in 1978. And what about you, Harry? I suppose some of the earliest names you would have known were Lily Del Pena and Arthur Lightning. We mentioned South Africans there. The latter of whom had an uh, interesting exit from Britain, didn't he? Well, he did. Yes, so, uh, he um, he was as South African. He's saying he'd been a very successful goalkeeper at Coventry. Uh, joined Middlesbrough from Coventry in 1962, and uh, his name, of course, I think we've discussed him before. Um, because of his name, because he, he's, I think his debut for Middlesbrough, they lost 6-1 to Newcastle and the Daily Mirror used the headline Lightning Thunderstruck. Um, and he'd, just play, he'd only played 15 games for Middlesbrough before he appeared before the court of session. Shades of Joe Frail here, you see, it's almost like, it's almost like we've thought this through. Um, he appeared before the court of session for receiving stolen wines, beers and spirits in his room at the Royal Hotel Redka. 
Uh, and though he was found guilty, he was discharged by the judge who described him as honest, truthful and manly. Um, and then in 1963, the club gave him permission to travel to South Africa to his brother's wedding and he never came back. And the Northern Echo sent a reporter to the travel agents uh, to were kind of finding out what had happened to him. And the travel agent said, I thought it's strange that he only bought a one-way ticket. <laughs> um, so there were, and, and then Lindy de la Pena, I mean, Andy said about that. I think what it was was that the FA introduced a qualification period. So you had to be resident in Britain for two years before you could play mm. Um, before you could play f- football professionally. So a few of those players who came down, and that that lasted until about 1976 or 78, but the law was repealed earlier in Scotland. The Scottish FA were, had took a more relaxed attitude, and so that was why the players were allowed, they could play in Scotland and take that as their UK residency. Um, but Lindy de la Pena, a similar thing with him, he was born in Jamaica, and a great player at Middlesbrough, played at Middlesbrough for about 10 years. He was from a fairly well-to-do background. His family had... That had racehorses, in fact. Um, but he was a really fantastic all-round athlete. He was a great sprinter. He's a really good cricketer and, in fact, played as a professional for Horden in the Durham Senior League while he was at Middlesbrough. Um, he's also a very good golfer. But he wanted, to be a, he wanted to be a footballer and he thought that the best way to get his residency in Britain would be to join the army. So he was actually in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers just towards the end of the war. And then when he came back, he signed for Portsmouth initially and he was at Portsmouth for two seasons. The two seasons at Portsmouth won the... Um, league title. Um, I didn't really play very often, but one of the games that he did play in was a was a game when Portsmouth beat Middlesbrough five one at Ayrson Park, and he played so well in that game that the the club club signed him. A bit like they they did with Yakubu as well. I seem to think a similar thing <laughs> happened with him, and so he signed for Middlesbrough, and he was very successful. I say he was there for for ten years, played two hundred and seventy games, and then he went to Mansfield, and then after that he dropped down into non league, played for Hereford uh, and Burton Albion. And he went back to Jamaica and became a very successful TV commentator. But one of the interesting things is that when he was at Middlesbrough, he made some extra money. Um, he and Brian Clough put on a staged a head tennis competition on stage at the Middlesbrough Empire Music Hall as part of a of an entertainment double uh, an entertainment bill. Um, and it went on all week. And they actually shared the bill with a man called Ron Dart which was the stage name of Ron Tomlinson from West Auckland, who was a world champion dart blower. He literally spat darts out of his mouth and burst <laughs> balloons balanced on women's heads and things like that. It was, it was the 1950s. People had to make their own entertainment. And so they shared the bill with him and it went on all week and they were paid £15 a week uh, each for the, for the performance. That's better than Netflix, that isn't it? You would, you would, you would think so, wouldn't you? There is a bit of film you can watch on YouTube. I think of Pathé Newsreel of Ron Dart because he appeared at the Windmill Theatre. Um, so, he, so he he spits darts all over the place in a slightly dramatic fashion. How did you first discover that you're really good at blowing darts a long distance? You'd have to do it accidentally, I guess. Well, well, the interesting thing on the on the film it says that he he learned the skill from his father, who'd lost both his arms in World War One. Mm. Oh right, yeah. I can see the connection with um, <laughs> with Arthur Lightning. Of course, another outing I should mention is again my theory that because he, he was Afrikaans, I think maybe his name was really pronounced Lichtening. I wonder if anyone ever asked him when he was here, "How is your name pronounced?" And he'd say Arthur. <laughs> so to say as well, um, uh, Vigo Jensen, you mentioned that he, one of his teammates in that Danish team who got the bronze medal in '48, uh, Karl Arga Hansen. 
Um, he also played a few games, as an, about 15 games for Huddersfield as an amateur before he moved to Italy. He spent most of his career in Italy, played for Juventus, amongst others. And I found an article about him um, in an Italian magazine online. And, of course, I pressed Google Translate this page. And what I discovered was that he said he started his career as a Methodist centromedian, but later converted to an all-court Metzala. Uh, one for the one for the tactics experts there. I was going to mention a couple of Egyptians that played in England and one of them in Scotland earlier on than ours, obviously because of Empire as well. Hassan Hegazi came to London in 1911 to study engineering, played for Dulwich Hamlet and played a game for Fulham as well. And then more successfully, Tufik Abdullah, he nicknamed Toothpick, obviously, played for Derby County, Cowdenbeath Hartlepool, and then Providence Clamdiggers and Fall River Marksman. So one of the few players to have that <laughs> career trajectory of Cowdenbeath Hartlepool, Providence Clamdiggers. I think it was interesting you mentioned the immigration policies and things, Andy, that stopped foreign players coming. I've recently been researching Rolando Ugolini and other Borough players. We can only apologise for yet more Red Hot Middlesbrough content in this podcast. And he, he was born in Italy. His mum, when pregnant, went back to Italy so he could be born there and then came back to West Lothian when he was just a, a baby. They suffered terrible prejudice as Italians in Britain, not just during the Second World War, but before it as well. The fact that the Act was called the Alien Act says a lot here, doesn't it? Do you think there was a lot of xenophobia about this policy? I also read that there was a campaign called Keep the FA Cup British as well. They also, you might wonder what sort of treatment um, Bert Troutman initially got, because a German goalkeeper with Man City who was originally a prisoner of war here. They ended mm. up staying here. He married some a local woman and so on. But I'd imagine immediately post-war, he, must have, uh, he was obviously a very good goalkeeper and um, he must have had a tough time at, uh, a bit, I would think. But I mean, he settled here. I think he was briefly manager of Stockport later. He later moved back to Germany, became a a coach there for the German FA, working for national teams in various countries. But yeah, I mean, pretty tough. There were uh, there were some um, English players, especially I think in Yorkshire, who whose fathers were Polish. One or two of whom I think were Polish airmen who came over during the war. Then they they ended up staying, and their sons became professional footballers. To sort of also think of the Robledo brothers as well, who a bit like Ugolini, they were born Ted and Ted and George Robledo. Uh, they were born in Chile. Uh, Chile, they had a Chilean father called Aristides and a, and a Yorkshire mum called Elsie. <laughs> and she brought them back to Yorkshire in the 1930s. It's often said that they were christened Jorge and Eduardo, but in fact they were actually christened George and Edward. And they had a younger brother called Walter. <laughs> and she came back to Yorkshire and they grew up around Rotherham and had so little contact with their father or with Chile, in fact, that when George Robledo was asked to go and play, for, asked to play for Chile, and he, he went out and he, he made his debut for them in the 1950 World Cup finals, he couldn't communicate with his teammates because he didn't speak any Spanish at all. Uh, but maybe because they didn't have the dad, the family was very close-knit, and uh, George and Ted both played together at Barnsley. And when Newcastle, George was very successful. He was a kind of, it's almost like a no-nonsense English-style forward. When Newcastle wanted to buy him, he would only sign for Newcastle if they also signed his brother Ted. He was a defender, a fairly average player, I think. And then the whole family moved up to Newcastle. George was massively successful. But one of the, one of the, one of the players, he was nicknamed Pancho as well. But Ted only played about thirty games for Newcastle. But they did play together in the nineteen fifty two FA Cup final, which George Robledo scored the winning goal in. Um, then Ted was sold by Newcastle to Colo Colo in Chile, and 
Uh, George followed him shortly afterwards and was very successful. He was top scorer in the Chilean league a couple of times. And after his retirement, he became a PE teacher and he was a president of Colo Colo. Um, Ted had a sort of less happy time after he retired. He got into financial trouble and his marriage broke down. And he went to work in the Arabian Gulf. And in 1972, he disappeared from an oil tanker he was working on. And there were rumours of a fight. And the captain of the ship was charged with murder and acquitted. And Ted's body was never found. But uh, I don't like to bring. I don't like to end on a down, downward note. So I'll say that most people would know that Albert Stubbins appears on the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album cover. And George Robledo appears on John Lennon's 1974 album, Walls and Bridges, on the cover of that. A painting that John Lennon had done while he was a schoolboy, which shows him scoring the winning goal in the 52 Cup final. And the, the album does include the track Number Nine Dream. Um, but of course, Jackie Milburn was Newcastle's number nine, George Robledo was number 10. <laughs> There's no better way to defeat misery than trivia, is there? <laughs> no, that's right. No, is, you know, I think that's up there. Did you know that, Andy? Uh, no, but I like that line about misery and trivia. That, that, that's going to be my standby <laughs> from now on, I think. <laughs> Thinking back to your Arthur Lichtning theory, Andy, that must have meant lots of these newspaper pun headlines were just meaningless to him, and he must have just picked up the Daily Mirror and gone, I don't really yeah, get that. these crazy poms, he <laughs> thought to himself. But what, one of the Morton players was uh, was Benny Arentoft, who, who did come down and play for Newcastle when they, following the trail of the Robledos, and scored in the Fairs Cup final for them. And then he went on to play for Blackburn, but he was he had been a civil servant before he became a footballer, and he went back to Denmark and carried on and he ended up as head of Copenhagen's juvenile probation service a job which truly his years of playing football in England and Scotland had well trained him for he was able to play in England also because he'd married a Scottish woman when he was playing for Morton oh right so he got UK citizenship or something so he was a rare case of a, a, a foreign professional well I think the only one of the pretty much of those Scandinavian players in Scotland who moved down to England but but he had he was able to get um, British nationality through through his marriage one reason players have sometimes not settled when moving abroad and that includes British players moving is homesickness have you any favorite examples of homesick footballers or managers well there's Ian Wallace the Scottish striker with Coventry and Forest who played for Brest in France briefly and left soon complaining that the coach had made no effort to communicate with him in English there were two Russian players Sergei Yuran a striker and defender called Vasily Kulkov who, jo- who signed for Millwall having both played in Portugal because they played for Benfica and Porto. I remember this weird press conference. So there's photos of them both looking extremely pissed off at their press conference uh, with Mick McCarthy's and the middle manager. And Euron subsequently, like they looked like they didn't want to be there. And Euron subsequently said that playing in, in the championship, which is where they were at the time, was more like playing rugby than football. Um, Mick McCarthy left and Jimmy Nickel was a manager later. And he said, about you ran later that uh, players would learn nothing from him except how to steal a living. So an unhappy period in South East London for, for the Russian duo. Harry, any homesick players? Uh, well, we have, we have to record Mrs. Emerson, I suppose, and her famous Middlesbrough is a strange and terrible place and I hope never to return. But on a similar note, Carlos Tevez was very unhappy with at Manchester in, and he said, there is nothing to do in Manchester. There's only two restaurants. Everything is small and it rains all the time. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> summarising Manchester there um, and also when um, Rudd Hullett was uh, manager of Newcastle his girlfriend at that time was Estelle Cruyff and Estelle Cruyff wouldn't move to Newcastle because she said there were no apartments nice enough there Gosh, What about the opposite thing the the players or managers who really take to life here and end up staying the, the Jan Molby Gerard Houllier effect 
Yeah, well, there's Robin van der Laan, Dutch midfielder who played for Port Vale and Derby and Barnsley. He's been a manager here in non-league recently at Newcastle Town, Newcastle Underline. Uh, he's also a coach with Man United soccer schools. Sergei Boltatcher, uh, Ukrainian player for Ipswich and mainly for St Johnston, also the father of Elena Boltatcher, tennis player who passed away a few years ago. He became a football coach at public school and is now in, ch- in charge of youth teams at Charlton. And Ozio Diaz, I think, still has a house in his. I think his wife and sons continue to live here after he retired from playing when he'd be off coaching other countries. I think his sons are both married to English women. And um, Rafa Benitez's family still live on, on the Wirral, um, up on a hill in the posh part from where they might be able to see my old secondary school playing fields from their front garden, should they choose to. I didn't mean to uh, make it sound like it was a strange decision to stay in this country, but frankly, going back to Spain and elsewhere sounds infinitely preferable, doesn't it, really? Gaisca Mendieta stayed living in Yarm, didn't he, after after his career was over? And, of course, Julio Arca, uh, he's he's still around, played for South Shields, doesn't notice he's just... Throwing his hat in the ring for the for the Sunderland job. Throwing his hat in the ring via Twitter, which is a good way to throw your hat in the ring, isn't it? That's that's the best way. That's the new way of throwing your hat in the ring. In the old days, you actually had to have a hat and a ring to throw it in, but now you can just do it all. You can do it all virtually. Did you bring your own ring with you and then set it up and then throw your hat in, or did the club have a ring and you had to stand a certain distance away? and aim your headwear at the ring, I don't know. Write in and let us know. I think now, now you have to do it on Zoom. If you had no uh, arms, you could have spat your dart into the ring as well. You'd <laughs> be a hat blower. I bet there was an act like that, though, on those old variety bills. There'd have been someone doing that, flinging a hat with their teeth. There's an old Alexis Sale bit about people say, why did the music hall die? It died because it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> Eee, what could be more festive than Phil Parks and Steve Perryman singing about peace? Well, how about something from the When Saturday Comes shop? We've got some great gift ideas in the WSC shop, including calendars and Christmas cards showing off some of the best images taken by our team of photographers down the years. There are also collections of classic comics Roy of the Rovers and Billy's Boots, plus Harry's book The Father Corner, and Extra Time by some schmuck called Daniel Gray. Order from shop.wsc.co.uk by December 20th to guarantee arrival in time for Christmas. Sing up, lads! It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? I've gone for Van de 5FC Spurt. When 5AC plays, which apparently is Viennese dialect, um, it wouldn't normally be quite that in German, um, by G. Blaschek and N. Svick. Um, Favoritner AC, one of the old small clubs in Vienna, have managed to survive that disappearing into a merger. Favorit is one of the inner city districts of Vienna, produced loads of footballers. Um, Tony Polster among them, though, he didn't actually play for the club. And this record came with a booklet for the 79-80 season um, that was called 5AC Der Hecht im Karfenteich. The Pike in the Carp Pond. 
but that has a quite the title has a question mark at the end, um, which is just as well because in fact they got relegated from the second division that year. So a, a toothless pike, maybe a pike who's feeling poorly, it's a basis for a children's book. Then I'm writing this down. Um, they did go on to have a couple of seasons in the first division in the mid 80s. Uh, they're currently in the fourth division, and I think you'll recognise the tune. There's a, there's a record that's been a sort of holy grail of football records, and we've often discussed it when, after we'd finished recording the podcast. And in fact, two weeks ago, I said I should go out and scour the charity shops of the North East, find this record, and send it off to 45 Football. Um, but in fact, in the two weeks since then, someone else has done the job for me, and so I'm delighted to be able to play Jack Charlton's Geordie Sunday. We used to sit on Grandad's knee and how we used to love the jam and butter we had for tea it doesn't seem so long ago like only yesterday oh it was great then man Sunday, every day. this time is Maradona by Linda D'Souza. I thought we should pay tribute to the great man in some musical way and what could be better than a song about a 10 year old French boy from Paris who wants to be like Maradona, Linda D'Souza. Il connaît par cœur, il la connaît dans sa chambre, sa photo 
l'emmènera plus loin que la rare. Au feu rouge, il nettoie les fables des voitures. Il ne pense qu'à toi, comme tu la crois au doigt. Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I spoke to Gavin Henderson of Roker Report, a Sunderland fan site and podcast. It started 10 years ago, um, well, coming up 11 years. And yeah, it, it started out as a blog site. It wasn't started by me, but um, I was a keen reader back in the day. Uh, and it just kind of grew from then. It was sort of around the time when fan sites and blogs and stuff were just starting to take off on the internet, you know, and mm. um, Sunderland never really had one. We had plenty of forums, and we've obviously got a very popular long-standing fanzine mm. in Sunderland with Love Supreme, but um, it kind of just developed over the years to the point where it is now, where we're the biggest, by far, biggest Sunderland fan outlet um, out there, and it's a no-short part just down to, how many passionate people we've got involved, you know. Um, it's it's become bigger than I ever expected, really. And, yeah, it's uh, we're, we're sort of in a position now where, where whilst we're at the height of our sort of popularity and so many people are reading what we do and listening to our podcasts and stuff, the club's at the worst point, you know. And mm. um, it's been an interesting time, to say the least. But, um, yeah, at least we've had – at least it's been entertaining, let's put it that way. Yeah. And in the last few years, it must have felt like group therapy. It's not been the best time to be a Mackham, has it? No, no, unfortunately not. I think since Rotten Report started, really, we've we've been on a complete downward trajectory, you know. Mm. Started around the time Steve Bruce was manager of Sunderland when we actually had a decent team in the Premier League to the point where we are now, where we're now facing potentially a fourth year in League One. Been a, it's been a roller coaster, really, following Sunderland and never been boring. It's certainly painful at times, like obviously at the minute with what's going on, we've we haven't got a manager as we as we record. I would I would like to say that it's cathartic, but um at times it isn't. There are days where you where you can't be bothered and wonder why do you do this? You know, I wish I was just like everybody else, I could just switch off from <laughs> it, but no, it's it's Sunland's just a mental club. Like anybody who's watched anybody who's watched the documentary on Netflix about us will have seen just a smidgen of what it's been like to follow Sunland over yeah. recent years. But also the sheer level of support and I always think of that taxi driver in Sunderland till I die I just he had me on for a Borough fan it's a funny thing to say but he had me on your side and it's it's him times 30 40,000 isn't it sort of been forgotten the size of the club really since you've fallen that far I think elsewhere I mean yeah I guess so yeah I mean obviously we we are still very aware of what we are and what we could mm. be and Sunderland just feels like a sleeping giant to me. It's it's waiting for somebody to just come and get this right. When when that happens, I don't know. It's mm. it's we've seen it with Leeds, haven't we? Leeds United mm. spent so long out the top flight, and look at them now, they're flying. But I just hope we aren't out the top flight as long as they were. But it mm. could be a case where we're out even longer. You know, it's a funny old time to follow any club, isn't it? And certainly as Sunderland fans, we just want to see somebody now come in and coming in and really kick us on to the next level. But doesn't every fan want that you know there's fans of clubs who just middle around every every season and are quite happy doing that but we know with the the size of the stadium that the facilities we've got the size of the fan base that if somebody gets this right at this club it'll it could it, we, we could be we we really should be competing in that top 10 of the premier league but just so many mistakes over the years have led us to this point and 
it's been it's been difficult at times trying to cover the club and and write about it and talk about it. But if it wasn't as interesting as it is, I don't think there'd be so many people with their eyeballs on Sunderland all the time as well. You know, even now we're in League League One clubs still, um, and fans of other clubs still keep up with Sunderland and look at what's going on. And we're still we're still a big team to play for a lot of the teams in this league, even though we've been down here three years. So yeah, I just I'm just waiting for that waiting for that moment when somebody comes in and grabs it by the scruff of the neck and has a real good go at it with Sunderland. And fingers crossed we're around the corner from that, you know. Hopefully it doesn't get much worse than this. When you talk about somebody coming in, do you mean in terms of a manager or, or, or you know, how, how is the fan base feeling about the ownership at the moment that we all feel like we know well because of the Netflix documentary? It's a funny one. Obviously around the turn of, of about this, it was towards the end of December last year, um, all of the main fan groups, ourselves included, came together to um, through a campaign in the way of the ownership and tell them they weren't wanted anymore, particularly the owner, Stuart Donald. Since then, we've been told repeatedly the club is up for sale. We're, we're, we're trying to sell the club. Um, as I speak to you now, I believe we're about to to announce a takeover change or at least some sort of ownership change, which will see a new investor coming on board, which most fans, I think, hope will signal the start of a new of a new beginning. But... Of course, you still do have a, a large portion of the fan base who just want rid of these owners. And unfortunately for them and unfortunately for a lot of people, and it, it's not going to probably work out as they wanted, but they are going to see a change of some sort. So again, it's a funny, it's, it's Sunderland's just such a mental club. Like, like I say, we've got something going on all the time. At the minute, it's this. But fingers crossed, like I say, it's the guy coming in is 23-year-old. <laughs> so he's not your traditional club owner. He's actually... He's he's very young. He's he's inherited a large wealth from his from his family and uh, has a minority stake in Marseille. His family are the Dreyfus family, who who are very famous, obviously for for being the long-standing owners of Marseille. So he has been around football clubs his whole life. So let's just see where it goes. I guess I'm just hoping that we we see a new, refreshed, modern approach to to managing the club from top mm. to bottom. Um, that's what we need more than anything. We just need we need we need a plan. I, I saw something the other day which said Sunderland have had eighteen managers since the turn of the century. That just shows you really we've never had a plan. We've never had a plan or anything resembling a long term plan that we can then back a manager over a number of years and hopefully see some progress. But at the stage we're at now, we're in League One. Like I say, there's no time better than now to to do that. So yeah, let's just hope that this is the new start. But we've seen this how many every everyone knows Sunderland are a bit of a basket case of a club, and let's hope. And I'm crossing my fingers and toes and everything that this is the start of something special. You've suffered more than most. Although I must say, you know what the answer is here, don't you? Put Grant Ledbetter in charge of everything. Must be my, <laughs> my favourite player of, of the last ten years for for Borough. He, he made me feel like a a teenager again, having favourite players. I wanted his poster on my wall, but my wife wouldn't allow it. Just love that, love that man. I'm glad he's back in the team with Sunderland because there was a there was a time there where everyone thought he was going to retire, but unbeknownst to most, he was having some personal issues with grieving for the loss of his mum and dad. And obviously, it must be horrendous. And in the, the break, the co- the first COVID break with the season ending early, gave him some time to really properly deal with these issues. And he came back um, came back at the start of pre-season, a different player. And I wouldn't say he's the same Grant Ledbetter that we maybe saw the first time mm-hmm. around or that Middlesbrough got to see, you know, in his prime. Yeah. But um, he's still he's still he's still capable of bossing games in League One, and he scored some 
he scored a cracking goal the other week. He can unite, tease and weir that man, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about your own supporting life then? When did you start going to see them? Oh, as young as young as I was, I would have said probably three or four year old. I don't remember my first game, but my dad was a steward. My dad was a steward at Roker Park, and apparently, rather than watching the game, all I used to do was watch him walk up and down. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't remember the games very well, but my dad was also part of a branch, and he helped run a branch, so I never missed a game when I was a kid. Mm. Really, once I got old enough to start going every week, which was probably what six, seven year old, and that was at the height of um, of the Peter Reid era. We would, oh yeah. Yeah, the, obviously the, the first season when we got to the playoff final and lost to Charlton from then, that was my first proper season, I think, of mm-hmm. going to nearly every game home and away. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I grew up probably in in the best era as a, for Sunderland fans, mm-hmm. you know, as kids coming to, like, I've, I've got a nephew who's 16, he's only ever known a really bad Sunderland team. Yeah. He's never seen us actually play well. Whereas when I was like young, even younger than him, I was going to watch Quinn and Phillips and Peter Reid and mm. finishing seventh in the Premier League and playing really good attacking direct football. Uh, so I was really fortunate. But uh, yeah, so I've been going since I was a little kid and I've always had a season ticket until this year. I didn't renew. First time I've never renewed. Purely down to the um, just the lockdown and not being able yeah. to go to games. I didn't see much of a point, but I'll be back. I'll be back as soon as I can be. And um, yeah, nobody loves something more than me. It's just the, it's, it's my life, you know. So Roka or Stadium of Light then? I went to Roka Park for a couple of seasons, but I'm probably too young to really appreciate it. And by that point, you've got to remember that Roka Park was a dump. There was a reason it was getting replaced. Mm. So it's not the same Roka Park that, you know, a lot of fans, a lot maybe 20 years old and me, 30 years old and me remember. Because yeah. they remember Roka when it was when it was booming and you know, football was just a different game then, wasn't it? You know, you went, you went, it was the it was the be all and end all of your week. Like mm. it was a big social occasion and you know, people didn't have much back then, but they had the football where in my my era we've we just really known the stadium of light, which is a gorgeous stadium, but we've never actually had any any success in it, which is yeah, we've we've had we've had a few second well, for what would we call it the championship wins in that stadium. Other than that, there were no real success. So I would like to say I had an emotional attachment to Roker Park, but unfortunately not. I'm actually very jealous of people who have, because it sounds like it was amazing. If I could transport back maybe drop myself into like 1964 when there was 60 odd thousand there watching Sunderland play Man United, something like that. You can just imagine what it was like, can't you? But you must have watched Premier Passions on YouTube though. Oh, absolutely. About a million times. Yeah. <laughs> Even better than Sunderland Till I Die, I think. That, that was a special Sunderland team, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They were just, they, they gave everything, you know, they, they weren't, you've got to remember that team, the one at Roka Park anyways, which got promoted to the Premier League and then, you saw play out in that Premier Passions documentary. You've got to remember that um, the, the the couple of seasons before that, that Peter Reid had actually taken over with the team in turmoil. They were about to get relegated. Managed to just turn it round. And he didn't actually change the squad that much over the years. It was pretty much the same players that got promoted the next year, you know. So it just shows how good a manager he was. And how it, they, they, they weren't pretty, but they, um, you know, they gave their all. The one final... Simple question. When you get back in that stadium, what little thing are you looking forward to most about your match day routine? It's probably not getting into the stadium. It's the it's the going to the pub beforehand with you know my family and my mates and just sitting and having a bit of crap watching the twelve thirty game and walking round and grabbing a pie on the way in and you know, just all those little things that add to it. It's like the match day experience. The the pub, definitely.
You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. 